Good morning. Let me get my timer going. Is that so you know when you're overtime? Yeah. Yeah. So I know whether to kick a field goal or. <laughs> so um, today we're going to actually preach two sermons. <laughs> uh, there was a, a glitch, a technological glitch. The last time I preached when I was going through Tulip. The Doctrines of Grace, the L, the Limited Atonement. So we're going to cover that, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. That's why I have my timer going. Um, so this weekend we are celebrating Reformation Sunday. What is that? What does it mean? Well, on October 31st, 1517, a monk, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the castle door, the, the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And these were grievances that he brought against the Catholic Church. The Protestant Reformation was a widespread theological revolt in Europe against the control and abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. One of the most grievous abuses during that time was Tetzel. He was selling indulgences. There was an old saying that said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, something along those lines. So he was selling certificates to people who had lost a, a son who happened to be a thief or a, a murderer who had died, and they would pay money, and he would give them a certificate saying that their child was now out of purgatory. Or somebody who had uh, committed a mortal sin was able to purchase their freedom from purgatory when they died or to shorten their time. What a horrible abuse. This was one of the main ones. Of course, there were many by this time, many, many abuses by the Catholic Church who claimed apostolic authority from Peter, from a misuse of the, the verse that we preached not too long ago, the verse that on this rock I will build my church. And so this the Catholic Church was apostate. Now, before Luther, there were seeds and streams of a Reformation going on. John Huss, John Wycliffe, the Lollards, who actually were the first ones to hand out tracts that I know of. They would print. They would write in the common language. They would write one or two pages of the Bible. And they would go into towns and they would hand these out. Because during this time, the Catholic Church controlled Scripture. It was in Latin. And most of the people couldn't read, much less read Latin. So they controlled the Bible. In fact, um, my dad had give, uh, gave us a page out of the 1611 pulpit Bibles about that big, out of Leviticus. And when our house burned down in 2012, that page of the Bible was in the top of the closet in a little cardboard box wrapped in saran wrap. And so the fire department came out and said, you know what, the fire's out. We're going to go in and hose everything down real good. So if there's anything in those back two rooms that are not, you know, that, that, that they were not consumed by fire, but it's going to be ruined when we, when we hose it down. And I said, would you mind grabbing me some boots? I have glass in my feet. There's some shoes out of my closet. They brought out my Tony Lama boots. I still have them, the ones I got married in. So I put those on with short pants. That's a long story and another story. It was pretty funny. Um, and I said, in the top of the closet, there's a cardboard box. And they kind of shook their head like, okay. Because smoke, I don't know if you've ever been, had a, a house fire or been to a house fire. Smoke gets in everything. Even pill bottles that are sealed up. Those pills are unusable because of the smoke damage. 
So they brought this cardboard box out to Mary Beth and I as we were sitting there on the back of somebody's tailgate, I think, in the, the, the parking lot next to our, our house. And I opened that thing up, and there it was. Not one bit of smoke damage. And the fire chief says we see that kind of stuff all the time. So uh, this was out of the 1611 pulpit Bibles. The majority of them were destroyed in the Great Fires of London of 1620, I believe it was. And we have a page of the Bible of the remaining 200 that my dad gave me. We ended up donating that to a, uh, a uh, museum, Museum of the Bible and Creation History Museum there in San Diego to the, her boss who helped us rebuild our house. So that's still there. And it actually says in there that this, this page donated by Mary Beth and James Moore, it survived the great fires of London of 1620 and the great fire of Mollison Avenue of 2012. <laughs> so so the, the Catholic Church controlled the Bible. They controlled the scriptures. They did not want the common man to have the scriptures in their own language. Why? Because the scriptures speak. This is God's communication to mankind. And they couldn't do all the little shenanigans that they were doing if the common man had the Bible in his own language. So at the heart of the, the, the um, Protestant Reformation, there's four basic questions. How is a person saved? Where does religious authority lie? Who's in control? What is the church? And what is the essence of Christian living? In answering these questions, Protestant reformers developed what would be known as the five solas. Sola in Latin means alone, by itself, only. These five essential points of biblical doctrine clearly separate Protestantism from Roman Catholicism. The reformers resisted the demands placed on them to recant these doctrines even to the point of death. The Catholic Church persecuted, killed, burned, beheaded so many true godly believers that would stand on scripture alone. So these five essential doctrines of the Protestant Reformation are as follows. Sola Scriptura, meaning scripture alone. That means that our only basis for life, holiness, and doctrine, and knowledge is the scripture. Martin Luther, when he was asked to recant this and recant these teachings, he is quoted as saying, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. His conscience was captive to the word of God. And that's how we should be. Scripture alone. The second sola, sola gratia. What does that sound like in Spanish? Gracias, or gracia is grace. By grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. Grace is unmerited favor, meaning we didn't do anything to deserve it. God gives grace to those who don't deserve it. If you do something... And God, and God or someone gives you something, those are wages. That's something you've earned. If you do nothing and someone goes here, that's grace. You know, there's a saying that, you know, yeah, we are, we are forgiven by Christ. But picture someone coming in and killing your entire family. 
and you've seen on YouTube and all and in court cases where the father of the, the dead child or the mother stands up and she goes, I forgive you to, to the killer. God didn't just do that. God forgave us. And then he took us into his house. He adopted us. And he made us his child. Can you imagine that? Look at that killer and saying, no, you're not going to pay. You're not going to go to jail. In fact, you're going to come live with me. I'm going to take care of all your needs. And I'm going to love you like a son. That's a whole other level of grace. That's a whole other level of grace. The third one is sola fide. By faith alone. Martin Luther understood this a little bit after the time he nailed the, thesis, the, the 95 Thesis. Salvation is by faith alone. Not works. It's faith. And it's not faith that we muster up. Faith that we develop. Faith that we grow. Faith is a gift from God. And our faith is placed in something external. Something alien. Something foreign. Our faith is in Christ. You see, my faith doesn't doesn't lie in my actions or my faithfulness. My faith is in Christ. His perfect obedience on the cross and then his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. You see how, how our faith is in something external as a true believer? Our faith is not in our own good works. It's in something else. It's in Christ. <coughs> Which leads us to the fourth one. And this one sounds just like it is. Solus, solo, solus Christus. Only Christ. Salvation is in Christ alone. Only Christ. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which you must be saved. It is in Christ alone. And then the last one. I'm sorry. Solus Christus. I already did. Hang on. <laughs> did I do it? Oh, so the soul scripture I did. I'm sorry. I had him out of order. And the last one, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. Everything we do, salvation is for the glory of God. Our, our walk in sanctification, when we evangelize, sure we do it to, to save lost souls, but ultimately we evangelize for the glory of God. If we share the gospel and nobody responds, God is glorified. God is glorified. I forget who said it, but he talked about angels watching, looking down at this guy preaching on the corner and marveling and glorifying God, saying there was a sinner. There was a man who was a rebel. And look at him now, proclaiming Christ alone, proclaiming <laughs> salvation, proclaiming and, and uh, giving glory to God. These five important doctrines are the reason for the Protestant Reformation. They're at the heart of what the reformers, uh, the, what the reformers called for the church, and they called them to return to biblical teaching. The five souls are just as important today in evaluating a church and its teachings as they were in the 16th century. When you listen online to other pastors or or somebody on on YouTube or or Facebook. Always have your feelers. You're discerning. We're talking about discernment. Always be discerning. Are they preaching Christ alone? Are they pre preaching therapeutic moralism? Are they preaching, you know, just doing TED Talks? Trying to get you to be a better you. Live a better life. 
health, wealth, and prosperity, or are they preaching Christ? The next question is, is the Reformation over? Nope. It's not. One of the cries of the Reformation was semper reformanda. Always. Semper fidelis. Always faithful. Semper. Always. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. And today more than, well, maybe not more than 16th century, but yeah, probably equal to, we need to be always reforming. We should always be looking at scripture and seeing if what we do in practice and what we teach and how we do service, how we do the Lord's table, how we pray, if it's in line with scripture. There should be a clarion call today to reform the church. And we know this because you can look at denomination, entire denominations that have gone astray, that are completely apostate. We're reading in Revelation. The candle has been, the candlestick has been removed because they have gone astray, because they stopped constantly reforming to the word of God. And they went astray. A few years later on, John Calvin would go on to systematize the truth that the Old Testament, that our Lord Jesus, that John, that Paul, that Peter, they all taught. Even the early church fathers, Augustine, taught these truths. These are precious truths. They're known as the, the five points of Calvinism, but they're also known as the doctrines of grace. What are the doctrines of grace that were revived, extolled, preached, and loved during the Protestant Reformation? As I did while preaching a sermon on these this last year, I'll begin with a quote from Ligonier Ministries. And I, I really believe this is one of the most succinct um, and clear uh, statements on what the doctrines of grace are. This is uh, Ligonier Ministries is the ministry of the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. The central truth of God's saving grace is succinctly stated in the assertion, salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> this strong declaration means that every aspect of man's salvation is from God and is entirely dependent upon God. The only contribution that we make is the sin that was laid upon Jesus Christ at the cross. The Apostle Paul affirmed this when he wrote, from him and through him and to him are all things. This is to say salvation is God-determined. It's also God-purchased. And who applies it? God does. From start to finish, salvation is from the Lord alone. This truth is best summarized in the doctrines of grace, which are total depravity, unconditional election, definite atonement, effectual calling, and or preserving grace. These truths present the triune God as the author of our salvation from beginning to end. This is still a quote. Each member of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, has a part to play in redemption, and they work together as one God. And this is key as we go through this, this next, as I teach through this doctrine today. This one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all taking part in salvation to rescue those perishing under divine wrath. In perfect unity, the three divine persons do the, hell, do the work that a hell-bound sinner, utterly unable to save themselves, cannot do, end quote. We will see that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all take part 
and salvation. In the, in, this, in the series earlier in the year, when we went through these five points of Scripture, and more importantly, how each of these biblical truths should bolster, support, and even excite you to share the gospel, This should excite you to share the gospel with each of the people you encounter as you go about your daily activities. Additionally, you will find no greater doctrines than these because they ascribe all the glory to God. He does, not, he does the work. He gets the praise and the glory, which he so richly deserves. So let's do a quick review of the five points of Calvinism, also known as the doctrines of grace. Tulip, which is my favorite flower. T, total depravity or total inability or total lostness. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement, which is also called definite atonement or particular redemption. And I, irresistible grace. And then the P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. All of these doctrines stand or fall together. You can't pluck one petal off that flower or it dies. But all of these truths hold together when we understand the first one, total depravity. When we truly understand what scripture says about each one of us before the Lord saved us and for our loved ones, families, family members that are still lost, this is what the Bible says about them. They're totally and utterly depraved. And once we understand what total depravity means, unconditional election becomes absolutely mandatory, necessary. It has to happen. When we see what scripture says about mankind, about the lost man, the unregenerate man, we see that election is the only solution. So total depravity doesn't mean that every man is as depraved as they, they could be. We know that. That's why we have laws in the country. You know, you can't murder, can't, can't rob. We have laws to try to keep man in check. There's stories of even Hitler who... We would all say is was very depraved. But there were times he would bring children in to sit on his lap. He would tell them stories and they would smile and laugh and giggle. So we see that even this man was not as depraved as he could have been. This doctor doesn't also doesn't teach that man is incapable of doing anything good. <laughs> but it's only good, relatively speaking. God's standard of good is completely different. If Bill Gates builds a hospital for orphans and widows, free services for them, is that good? Sure. But it's still sin, according to the word of God, because it wasn't done for his glory. It wasn't done for his glory. Romans 3 gives a 14-point indictment against mankind. For the sake of time, we're not going to read through it, but I'm sure you all are very familiar with it. It says no one is good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. All have gone astray. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Under their tongue is the venom of ass. Their throats are an open grave. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Who does good? No one. And these are quotes out of the Psalms. This is not Paul making something up. R.C. Sproul put it this way. The whole world is running away from God as fast and as hard as they can. And in his grace and mercy, he says, not you, your mind, come to me. You see, man is bent towards himself and away from God. Oh, but my friend's a seeker. He's really seeking. Romans 3 says that no one seeks God. 
No one. You see, it takes an act of God. It takes an act of the triune God to draw man, to change him, to give him a new heart to where now he seeks God. We are lost and depraved. We also know that the unregenerate man is blinded by the God of this age. They're following after the prince of the power of the air. They're spiritually blind. They're deaf. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. Dead, not mostly dead, completely dead. So when we preach the gospel, we are preaching to corpses. We are preaching to stone figurines. As we go out to UT, we know this. We know that we're teaching. You might as well be yelling at a brick wall. The wall can't, you know, you can say anything you want to a wall. It's not going to get mad and fight back with you. This is where we're preaching to cadavers. But it's through the gospel that we preach that the Holy Spirit breathes life into a dead corpse. You know, a lot of times you'll see pictures of God reaching down and man reaching up. No, no, you're a dead corpse on the bottom of the ocean. What, what can a corpse do? Stink. Right? It's all it can do is stink. You can kick it, poke it, light it on fire. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to yelp, scream, cry, or try to fight. It's a corpse. But it's through the triune God that this corpse can live. So once we understand the total depravity of man, unconditional election becomes necessary and altogether beautiful. God must be the one to choose. The scripture makes it plain that man cannot choose God on his own. Man is a slave to sin, ergo, because he can't, and all he can do is choose to sin. Varying degrees, but outside of Christ, all you can do is sin. Grace is unmerited favor, like I said earlier. Unconditional election. Paul is the primary example of unconditional election. Here was Paul, Saul, breathing out murders against Christians. He went and got papers from the Sanhedrin, from the ruling leaders, to go and, and arrest Christians and to put them to death. And God's up there going, that's my boy. He's mine. Imagine the angels going, what? This guy? He's a murderer. He stood there and held the cloaks when they stoned Stephen, giving approval. He goes, yep, he's mine. Because in God's perfect timing on the road to Damascus, he says, enough with your rebellion. <coughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine that? There is hope for anybody you encounter. You can't pre-qualify people because they're a drug addict or a drunk or a liar or an adulterer. No. God saved me. He can save anyone. He saved you. Can you imagine that? The love of God. That while we were yet, we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It just... Paul also began every one of his 13 epistles with sovereign election. He didn't hide it. God is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? It means he's in control. He rules. 
his will is accomplished. Paul was not ashamed of that doctrine, and he knew that he was a perfect example of God's amazing unconditional election. The third doctrine is limited atonement, which we'll cover today. The fourth one is I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Sounds like God for, drags sinners kicking and screaming. No. He changes their want to. He changes them. And when God changes you, you can't say no to grace. For the first time, you see yourself as filthy. And grace is just beautiful. Yo, God, why me? Why me? Why would you choose me? Grace is irresistible. You can't say no to it. And then the P, perseverance or preservation of the saints. We persevere because God preserves us. He perseveres us. Remember, from <laughs> Meaning, if God saved you, you're in his hand and nobody can snatch you. You can try to run away. He's not going to let you. He chastises whom he loves. There is no getting out of it. Why do you wake up tomorrow still a believer? Do you have to wake up and go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got to believe today. No. He holds you in his hand. You're his. You're his possession. You're a child adopted by him. So R.C. Sproul provides the following quote. Now we're going to talk about the L, which I kind of skipped over in, in the introduction because we're going to cover it more thoroughly now. Limit, he provides this uh, quote on limited atonement. I think that of all the five points of Calvinism, limited atonement is the most controversial and the one that engenders perhaps the most confusion and consternation. This doctrine is chiefly concerned about the original purpose, plan, or design of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross. Was it the father's intent to send his son to die on the cross to make salvation possible for everyone? But with the possibility that his death would be effective for no one? That is, did God simply send Christ to, to, to the cross to make salvation possible? Or did God from all of eternity have a plan of salvation by which according to the riches of his grace and its eternal election, he designed the atonement to ensure the salvation of his people. Was the atonement limited in its original design, end quote. So the use of the word limited has caused much consternation for many people throughout the last several hundred years. But the ultimate question we must ask is, for whom did Christ die? For everyone? Or for only for his elect? So limited bothers people. How can anything Christ do be limited? So limited atonement was actually a pejorative. It was actually a way of maligning these doctrines. But we like to, I think a better use is definite atonement, meaning he died specifically and definitely for a particular subset, a group of people, his bride, the church, the elect. This means that Christ died salvifically and completely for only those who the Father gave him. Much like sovereign election, definite atonement sticks in the craw of men who think they need to help to preserve God's honor. Because saying Christ died only for the elect or only for a subset of people sounds incredibly harsh, unloving, unfair. 
that God elects sounds unfair. And so unconditional election and limited atonement come against our pride as a human being. So you'll find a whole swath of evangelicalism today that literally hate these doctrines because they want to maintain their autonomy. I am God. I make the decision. I chose Christ. I asked him into my heart. I accepted Jesus. The question is, did Jesus accept you? You see, this has been a blight since the early 1900s on Christianity. This easy believism, decisionism. And they did it because they wanted numbers. They wanted to be able to count how many souls have been saved, to put in their bulletins, to put in their, their, their monthly reports. We baptized 75 people this, this, you know, this month. So in order to raise the number of conversions and those saved, they began to do the, the uh, sinner's prayer. Just repeat this prayer. Welcome to the family of God. If you repeated that prayer and you're sincere in your heart, in fact, there's a gentleman on TV on some of the news stations that says, if you repeated this prayer right now and you were sincere, but you see man is completely corrupt, bankrupt, lost. Our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. How can we be sincere about anything apart from being in Christ? We can't. We deceive ourselves. So the main reason people don't like these doctrines and this doctrine in particular is because it makes God sound unfair, unloving. And God's got to be fair, right? So there's two main groups that deny or reject limited atonement. The first one are Arminians. Okay? They don't believe that God elects. They believe God looks down the quarters of time and sees who will choose him. So that means God is learning. It's, it's a very weak and defective view. Another one is they're known as Amaraldians or four-pointers. These are usually out of Dallas and a lot of the SBC seminaries. And they are followers of Moses Amarat, who lived from in 1596 and taught hypothetical universalism. Hypothetical universalism is a theological system which most of the 21st century churches adhere to today. This is a horribly deficient understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In essence, it teaches that Jesus Christ actually and savingly died for all men. The only those who choose Christ receive the benefits through faith. If cornered, most members of churches today, big box churches especially, you ask them, did Jesus die for everyone? They would shake their head and say, absolutely. Amen. Did he die for everyone? So Amoraldians are considered four-pointers. So they would embrace sovereign election, total depravity, irresistible grace, and preservation of the saints, but would reject limited or definite atonement. They would argue that Christ died potentially for all men, but only those who receive Christ in repentance and faith benefit from Christ's atoning work on the cross. As reasonable as their argumentation sounds, I believe that when we look at Scripture, we will see that to see Christ died to make it possible for all men to have salvation actually puts Christ's work on the cross at odds against the other two members of the Trinity. The Father calls and the Father gives a particular people to the Son. The Son comes and he dies for those who are given to him. 
And as we look through today, we're going to stay in the Johannine literature, in, in the, the, the writings of John. We're going to stay consistent, stay in the writings of John. Then the Holy Spirit seals, secures, and sanctifies those given to the Son. You see how each member of the Trinity has a specific work in salvation? Each member of the Godhead accomplishes work on behalf of a specific, predetermined, sovereignly elected number of people out of the whole, meaning out of all mankind, out of everyone born. To say Christ died potentially for everyone is to create disunity among the Trinity. God, the Father elected, he gives them to the Son. The Holy Spirit seals those people as a guarantee and sanctifies those people. And Jesus died for everybody. To make it possible for everybody. Do you see how that creates disunity in the Trinity? Can you imagine the Trinity from all time? There's been perfect unity, perfect love, perfect communion. And yet if you're consistent with these views, you create disunity between the Trinity. In fact, Calvinistic Baptists, Baptists, which we are, were known as particular Baptists. Why? Because they held fast to the doctrine of particular redemption. An Arminian or Amoralian will quickly latch onto one single verse that seems to say Christ died for the whole world and just as quickly reject particular redemption or limited atonement based on these single verses ripped out of context or without studying the verses thoroughly. If they were consistent, if an Arminian or Amoralian were consistent, they would be have to be universalists. Because if Christ died, if he shed his blood for everyone, then everyone will be saved. But see, they, 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 won't, they won't say that. But if they were consistent theologically and intellectually honest, saying that Christ died for everyone would mean that all will be saved. And there are people... Not among these groups here, but there are people that teach universalism that eventually everyone will be saved. God is too kind. He doesn't have a hell. He will eventually save everyone. So Arminians and Amoraldians also limit the atonement. If they were intellectually honest, they limit the atonement because they say we're not universalists. So they actually do say that only those who ask Christ into their heart or accept Christ, or only those who, who are saved, actually, Christ died for. So there's also another doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Alistair Begg said, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So the doctrine of the perspicuity, or again, the clarity of Scripture, means that when we read a single verse that seems to contradict the plain and clear teaching of our Lord, we must be diligent to properly study that verse, knowing that God is able to and did communicate clearly in Scripture. So many denominations and churches have gone so astray because they will cherry-pick verses. Rather than looking at the totality, the whole counsel of God, and looking at what's taught and deriving doctrines from full texts, they will take one verse and create a doctrine out of it. That's how most cults start. That's how most heresies start. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. A lot of the charismatics believe that means that you can create things and, and, get, and create curses by what you say. 
Oh boy, I hope I don't die in a car crash. I cancel that assignment. The fact that I said I might die in a car crash, I'm now bringing that on to myself. I mean, this is witchcraft. This is this is voodoo, <laughs> right? And that's because they take that one verse out of context. By his stripes, we are healed. It's another one. That that guarantees physical healing in this lifetime. But if you look at the verses before and after that, it says iniquity, sin, transgressions. By his stripes, we are healed. There's nothing in Isaiah, in, the, in those verses, that shows that he's talking about physical health. He's talking about spiritual health. He's talking about salvation. Talking about atonement, propitiation, that it, that it, it, the iniquities are sins, that these are what we are washed from. So again, we're going to stick with just the Johannine literature and to, to um, do it a little bit backwards here. I'm going to take a verse that they will commonly throw out as kryptonite, a verse that they think is the silver bullet that destroys limited atonement. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What is propitiation? The wrath of God is coming after the lost man. He was coming after me. And Christ stands in between and absorbs that wrath. He satisfies God's judgment, God's wrath. That's propitiation. So here clearly it says that he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. If you grab onto that one verse, you're going to be like, hey, it's right there. He died for everybody, Right? we've got to be diligent in studying scripture a little further study you determine that john used this word world for all you know he died for the whole propitiation for the whole world he used it 10 different ways in his writing the following is from effectualgrace.com the word world greek cosmos appears 185 times in the new testament 78 times in John, 8 in Matthew, 3 in Mark, and 3 also in Luke. The vast majority of its occurrences are therefore in John's writings, as it is also found 24 times in John's three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and just three times in Peter. John uses the word cosmos 10 different ways in his writings. The first way he uses it, the, the word cosmos, world, is to mean the entire universe. John 1.10, he was in the world, planet Earth, and the, the, and the world, planet Earth by implication, all creation, was made through him, yet the world, the people of the world, did not know him. You see, he used it two different ways there. John 17.5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. It's another way that John is using the word cosmos, the same Greek word cosmos. He also uses it to mean the physical Earth. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. This is Christ leaving the terra firma, the planet. John also uses the word cosmos, world, to mean the world system. 
okay, what we would call cosmology, the, the world system, in other words, governments, things like that. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, the satanic kingdom, rulers. He also uses it to describe all of humanity except believers. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evils. See how John is using the word cosmos here to describe all unsaved people. The fifth way, a big group, but less than all the people everywhere. So a subset of humanity. John 12, 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. John also uses this same word cosmos to refer to just the elect, just Christians. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, this is John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this Greek word, he's using 10 different ways. He also uses it to mean the realm of mankind. John also uses cosmos to refer to Jews and Gentiles. Not just Israel, but many Gentiles too. John 4, 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And number 10, the 10th way, he uses it to refer to general public, the general public as distinguished from a private group, not those a small private group, but just, just people in general. So seeing this list can be very helpful when traditions reign supreme, when people like to me say that the world means everyone, everywhere, all the time, forever. Sometimes it does, but most of the times it does not mean that. It is a tradition that is very strong, but one that cannot survive biblical scrutiny. In a moment, we'll let God's word speak for itself. We will see the doctrine of particular redemption taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches it clearly and unashamedly. We must bow the knee to the text. Sola Scriptura. Reformation Sunday. Scripture alone. You know what? If you see a doctrine clearly taught in Scripture in multiple places, even though it is an affront to you, even though it comes against your pride or what you think God is like, we must bow the knee to scripture. I was brought up in an Armenian household. And 12 years ago, 11 years ago, when the Lord saved me, I started reading scripture and listening to the time, John Piper, the time, you know, and now, you know, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. And when they, I heard him talking about election and limited atonement, I bowed my back. This can't be. This is not the God I know. This is not the God, the God I've been brought up with. But it was from out of ignorance. I was a false convert for so many years going to church, trying the do-do-do's and don't do the don't-don't-don'ts, counting on my own righteousness. And then I started reading Romans. And Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 hit me like a brick wall. It was, I choked on it. And literally for a month, I cried over the text. I wept. I said, this is not who I thought you were. My first reaction was, this is not fair. What do you mean? Christ only died for certain people? 
He didn't die to make it possible for everyone. That's just not fair. And ultimately, after a month, I yielded. And in brokenness, I said, God, I want to know you for who you are and for how you reveal yourself in Scripture. I want to know the real God. Not a pigment of my imagination. Not a figment of my <laughs> imagination. And Mary Beth and I actually for about six months knocked heads. You're arrogant. What do you mean, God? And we says we read scripture together. She'd be like, it's right there. It's right there. It's everywhere. God grabs the Assyrians with hooks and brings them out against Israel to punish Israel because they're apostate, because they're idolaters. Then what does he do? He punishes Assyria for coming against Israel. God's sovereign. Who can thwart his will and who can say, what have you done? So let's look at a marvelous text in scripture. Let's turn to John 10. This is a passage about Christ, the good shepherd. When, when Jesus was talking about the good shepherd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the Jews knew who this was. Israel were the sheep. God was the good shepherd. He, they knew exactly what he was talking about. This is also a passage where twice we hear, I am. The I am declarations. There's seven of them in the book of John where Christ clearly said, I am. He used the covenant name of God. He said, I am. I am he. I am God. So for Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm sorry. It's all over the place. For Mormons, same thing. The Pharisees knew he was proclaiming to be God, and that's why they wanted to kill him. It wasn't because he was doing miracles. That was a good thing. Everybody loved him. But the Pharisees knew he was proclaiming to be God, and they couldn't handle that. They would not tolerate that. In this passage also, he references the other, the other flock. This is a passage that refers about you and me. Gentiles talks about another flock that you do not know. That's us, the Gentiles. You can go to Romans 11. And you can read how God has cut off the branches of Israel. And he has grafted us in. And he says, but don't be proud. Because if I grafted you in, it's going to be very easy for me to pull you out and graft them back in. You see, this other flock is us. So let's read through this. And then I'll go back and briefly highlight some of the, some of the points. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is the thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper keeps open and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. He knows his sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. You see this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep? He speaks, they know his voice. He knows them by name. That they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of the stranger. Again, this, this right here refers to discernment. A true sheep hears the shepherd's voice and he recognizes it. Have you ever, have you ever seen something on TV and you're listening to it and you're like, hey, it's about Jesus and Something, something fishy here. I smell something bad. What, what is this guy saying, right? That's discernment. That's the Holy Spirit. That's you recognizing that that is not your shepherd speaking. 
Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. There's the, the I am. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, I, he will be saved. And I will go in and out and, fi and find and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have, may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Pharisees knew what this meant. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Gives it for the sheep. But the hireling is he, he who is the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. The far majority of what uh, the megachurch pastors and Joel Osteen, you know, people like that. These are hirelings. They're getting rich off the backs of sheep and goats, mostly goats. They're entertaining goats. They're, they're goat, goat clowns. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father. You see how he's referring to about knowledge between him and the father and he and his sheep? He's drawing parallels here. That this communion, this bond that he has with the father and with the spirit, he also has with the sheep. Christian, that is surety of salvation. No, You can no more break up the Trinity than you can break a Christian away from God. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for everybody. Nope. For the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's the Gentiles. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because why? I lay down my life that I may take it again. So who does he lay down his life for? The sheep. Who? He laid his own life down. Nobody killed him. He gave his life and he took it back up. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. This command I have received from my father. There are sheep who have still not heard his voice. That's why we share the gospel with supreme confidence. He died for a specific group of people. And we can't run around and lift the back of people's shirts and see a little E for elect. We don't know. Bank presidents, drug addicts on the street, college students, atheists, so-called atheists. We can't tell who's who. So we proclaim to all men, repent and believe. We don't know who's elect. So we go out to the world and we say, come to Christ, repent and believe. Christ died for sinners. When Christ laid his life down, he said to tell us that. He goes, it is finished. He didn't say, we've only just begun by the carpenters. He said, it is finished. It's done. He purchased a people, a bride, as we see throughout scripture. Not one drop of his blood was spilt in vain. Jesus' blood was it's infinitely worthy. One drop is enough to save all of mankind. Yes. But he did not spill his blood for those who will not repent and believe. And those who will repent and believe are the elect. They are his sheep. 
They are those who have been loved before the foundation of the earth. People say when you, you know, you read this prayer, son, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. No. If you are a believer today, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations of the earth. Revelation 13, 8. All will serve the beast except those whose names was written, were written in the book of the life of the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. That book has been around forever. It has names in it. And if your name's in it, it can't be erased. You are elect. God has loved you before the foundations of the earth. He has seen you in Christ before the foundations of the earth. So either Christ died for all the sins, and thus everyone's going to be saved. Well, he died, or he only died for some of the sins of some of the people, which means you still have to do some works to add to what Christ did you know, the sins that Christ died for, get more grace to enter heaven. Or he died for all the sins of those who were called. We know he has an elect out there. That how do we how does this help us in evangelism? We know that he has the elect out there. We don't know who they are. And so we preach to every man, come, come to Christ. Flee the wrath to come. Flee to Christ. Run to him. He is worthy. We can live in confidence that if you are in Christ today, you've been loved for all eternity. You've been chosen by the Father. You were given to the Son. You were purchased by the Son. And you're sealed by the Spirit. Perfect unity in the Trinity. To accomplish their sovereign purpose. The gospel is this. That God is holy and we're not. Because God is a just God and a good God. He must be a just judge. That means that he must punish every sin. There's not a little white lie. Not a glance of lust. Not a, not a, a thought of revenge. Nothing. Gets by. He knows our thoughts. He knows our every word, and he sees our actions. You may look clean on the outside to the people around you, but God sees your thoughts. And because he's just and he's holy, he must punish all sin. So one of two things happens. Either you pay for your sins from eternity in hell, or Christ paid for your sins. You see how no sin is just let go or forgotten about? Somebody paid. Either we pay or Christ paid. And that's the bad news, that we are under the wrath of God apart from being saved by Christ. But the good news is this, that God himself, to satisfy his own wrath against our sin, provided the answer. He provided the solution. He provided the sacrifice. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, there's world, cosmos. Did he take away the sins of all the world? No. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. So John right there was referring to those who would believe. So Jesus lived the perfect life you and I can't live. And then on the cross, he willingly, knowingly died a sinner's death. He never sinned. But God the Father treated him as if he was a sinner. And he punished him on our behalf, Christian. Now he can be a just God and he can let us go free. Are we just? No. But we've been justified. We've been declared legally right with God because of the work of Christ on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. 
the father's stamp of approval that his payment was received. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, you can be let free. And not only let free from the penalty of your sin, but he adopts you. And he brings you into his household. And he loves you with a specific salvific love. And he protects you and he holds you. And he won't let you go. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have. Our faith and trust is placed in Christ and something outside of our own selves. So if you're relying on your own self-righteousness, your own good works to get you to heaven, stop. Because you don't have any self-righteousness. You don't have any good works. So consider these things. The call of the gospel. God commands all men to repent and believe. It means turn from your ways and put your faith in Christ. It's an act of turning away from sin. Not just turning over a new leaf, but you're turning away from sin. And you're putting your faith in Christ. You see, it's not just being a better person. I'm just not going to quit doing these things. No. Repentance. You're saying to God, I agree with, what, with you what you say about me. That I am a vile, wicked sinner and I deserve your wrath. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then place your faith and trust in Christ. Consider these things today. And as a believer, you should be preaching that to yourself continually. It's so easy when you go out and share the gospel or I come back from one of these trips and I'm like, God must be really proud of me now. And I'm like, oh, what a wicked thought. Right? Or you can get down and be like, oh, man, I, I just can't keep from doing this one particular thing. Preach the gospel to yourself. Read the word of God. Spend time in his word. Get to know him and love him for who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your gift. Just love that we don't deserve. At the right time you sent your son as a sacrifice to satisfy your own wrath. And so we thank you for that, Father, that you did not just leave us on our own. Otherwise, we would stand open to your wrath. It would stand without any excuse or remedy. But you provided a remedy, Father. You provided a substitute, and so we thank you. Thank you for that immeasurable love that you bestowed upon us, and not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and you are loving and you chose to love us. Father, may we go forth and preach the gospel out of our gratitude and out of obedience. For there are so many out there that don't know you. This world is in a, in a spiral downward. So many people without hope, spending all day on their phones or on the internet or partying or whatever, just to keep their minds busy, to keep their minds off eternity. Use us, Father, as a tool as a voice to call your sheep that you would receive all the glory for those that you chose, those that the son purchased, that you would, that he would receive his reward father in Jesus name. Amen.